The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now the text for our study of church history is Matthew 16:18, in which Christ told the church that he would build it and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And you have heard me say that so many times over these past several weeks that I know it really has to be etched into your brains. Christ formed the church for one reason, and I don't think that you've missed that reason either. Uh, we teach it often around here, but in case you have missed it, uh, I'm going to read to you from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 21. And while I'm doing that, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, Paul stated the reason for the church in a very succinct manner in Ephesians 3.21. He said, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And so the purpose of the church as you all well know, is to glorify Christ. Now, when we think about the church, we, of course, think about salvation, because there can't be a church without the salvation of sinners. And yet, what we're never to do is to get the salvation of sinners ahead of the glory of Christ. In other words, what we can't do is to substitute the salvation of sinners for the glory of Christ, because that's what salvation is actually intended to do. It is intended to glorify Christ. So always and only, sinners are saved for the glory of Christ, and that really ought to prevent us from having man as the, as the end, or the salvation of men as an end in itself. The, the reason that we do all of this and people are saved, God has determined this is done for his glory. And I hope that you well understand that because that's very critical to what I have to say tonight. Now, to help us to understand that Christ is always preeminent in salvation, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where you're looking tonight at verse number 26, he said, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glorify in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And so everything that we are in salvation, the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption, all of that is because of Christ. He is the cause of those. And so when we glory, who should we glory in? We should glory in Christ. Exactly right. So all glory has to go to him because he's the cause of all of these things that takes place in our lives as Christians. Now, if there's anything then that we have to strictly avoid is that any glory in salvation or any purpose of salvation should be exit or should exist outside the glory of God. I mean, all that God has created, all that you are, all that everything is, is for his own glory. 
uh, Romans 14, 8 says, For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, or whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. So let's have that in our mind as we start out tonight, that the glory of God is the preeminent thing, that all we are is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our subject for these past few weeks has has been the great theological change that took place in the 19th century in the period of revivalism. Uh, that's where we are again tonight, on the period of revivalism. And I, and I told you at the very beginning of this little subset of lessons that we've had on this, is I could have titled this, What Went Wrong? Why, why is the theology of Baptist different today from what it was for 1,800 years? And if I could boil down all that I've said in these lessons to just a few words, I would say this, that revivalism changed the purpose of the church from the glory of Christ in salvation to the glory of man in salvation. That revivalism changed the glory of Christ into the glory, uh, uh, change it away from the glory of Christ as man's will is glorified and put above uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the untouchable supreme so that God is left helplessly dependent upon man's decisions. And that doctrinal shift began with Charles Finney, who was not a Baptist, but nevertheless he has greatly influenced Baptist thought. Uh, Finney taught that sinners must change their own hearts. They have to renew their own disposition. They must consider the gospel intellectually and they must decide to be regenerated. And so rather than God dealing with the creature, this is the creature dealing with God. And he dictates the means, he dictates the bounds by, by which he will either be under God or not under God. That's strictly his decision to choose. So if at worst... Man doesn't receive all of the glory in that system. At best, he shares glory with God because the decision is not God's that is determinative. Now, the great error in all of this that flips the whole thing upside down is the error of decisional regeneration. That's the error that, that goes to the core of salvation by switching regeneration from a sole act of a sovereign God to the sole act of a sovereign man. Or, or at least in this particular area, as it has to do with man's will, that man is sovereign on, uh, uh, over his will and God simply cannot intrude upon it. And so when man becomes responsible, when man is responsible for his salvation in that regard, that it, he's the one that makes the determination, then who is it that should get the credit? Well, the credit can't go to the glory of Christ. The credit then goes to man. Now, the fundamental problem here is much deeper than what I intended in these messages, but it does lie in the understanding of the will. And if the will was not debilitated by the fall and man still has some spark of goodness in him, then... Perhaps the will can be revived and it can be turned into the right direction. But if the will of man is depraved, as all the other faculties of man are because of the fall, then there's no one but God that could ever cause a person to believe. Now, universally in evangelicalism, it's been taught that Christ was a substitutionary sacrifice for all men. 
that Christ went to the cross and he made a payment that satisfies God for sin, but no one actually receives the benefit of that payment until by an act of his own will, he receives this free gift that's given by God. Now, at that point, then, Christ has done all that he can do. Uh, The offer is made, and he's done no more for one man than he's done for any other man. So all people are on equal footing, and every person can avail himself of the gift that God has to offer. Now, if you think about that, if you really understand what's being said there, you can easily see that in such a scheme, Christ has not actually provided a, a... complete salvation, that there are no people that are actually saved by the cross alone, but the cross actually becomes ancillary, and faith actually is the key. We're saved by faith and not the object of our faith. Well, I don't think any of us think that uh, we don't believe. We have to believe. Christ or God doesn't believe for us, and so it then is actually faith that saves us and not the cross. What the cross only did was to give us a potential for salvation, but not salvation itself. That's what faith does. When I state it like that, you should be very upset. You should be bristle that I, you should bristle that I should say it like that, because if you are a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you don't want to take anything away from the cross. No, you love the cross. To you, the cross represents the death of Christ. It represents the shedding of his blood on your behalf. And so you would never want me to make any kind of a hint that you saved you. That you have some part of your own salvation because you know very well that it's Christ who saved you. And I think that most Baptists wholeheartedly believe that. Uh, you, you have to believe that in order to be saved. It can't be anything that you have done. And yet, Baptists who say that and believe that will also accept the decisional regeneration of Finney. And in their preaching, they're actually saying something otherwise. And what they've done is they've elevated the will of man above God. So now there's room for man to boast in his salvation. And this is why you hear the term of free will bandied about so much, that free will is the, is the non-negotiable prima donna that refuses to be touched. So the will, they say, must be unencumbered. And that's really the whole problem. They don't understand that the will of man has never been free. And even in the, before the fall, it wasn't absolutely free. And so it can only be free in one sense now, and that is our will is free sin. Jonathan Edwards described the will as man's strongest inclination at the time. And so if man is a sinner and only a sinner, then his strongest inclination at any time is always to sin. And sin never chooses God. Now the reason that I decided that we would spend so much time on revivalism is because we need to be shown that that kind of thinking is not biblical and it's not historical. And so you have these tools of revivalism that have been brought in, such as the sinner's prayer and the altar call and protractive invitations, uh, protracted invitations, and those aren't actually found in the Bible, but those are inventions of an era. They're aids to the idea of decisional regeneration, and they can throw us off track as to what true biblical regeneration is. Uh, What decisional regeneration does, it deepens the darkness regarding the glory of God. Because Christ doesn't receive all the glory. 
and that's what he's designed salvation to do. So he cannot and he will not receive all of the glory if regeneration in any sense begins with man. And then I also wanted to tell you about revivalism because that's what makes this church different. And that's why we separate from many Baptists uh, on this particular point. Now, admittedly, some of the vestiges of revivalism are found in our own church. And that shows us that not everything that came out of revivalism is wrong. If we can maintain our doctrinal integrity, then certainly we can use some of the things that came out of revivalism, such as an invitation. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, You know that I don't like the term altar call. But if, if if we make a call for the gospel in such a way that we're teaching people that it's not coming to this particular place of the church that has anything to do with their salvation, and it's not themselves that's bring, or not, they're not bringing themselves to Christ, but the Holy Spirit is calling them to salvation, then absolutely we can use those kinds of things. But we have to maintain the doctrinal integrity. We have to make sure that we're telling people that they flee to Christ and not a particular place in the church in order order to be saved. Now, I've also spoken to you about revivalism because it's antithetical to the doctrines of grace. You can't maintain both the doctrines of grace and decisional regeneration. Now, I want you to bear in mind, when I'm talking about decisional regeneration, you are not to assume that all Baptists agree with decisional regeneration. Because many of the ones that that disagree with some some other doctrines don't believe in decisional regeneration. But there is a huge faction of independent fundamental Baptists that do in fact believe in decisional regeneration. And those are the ones that I would be talking about. And so what what decisional regeneration does, it it reverses the ordo salutis. And we've talked about that a little bit uh, before, that if you have regeneration in front of repentance and faith, then only the Holy Spirit could be responsible for it. But if you reverse the order and you put repentance and faith in front of regeneration, now you put man in charge of what happens. That's what takes place in decisional regeneration. And so if there's going to be a correction to that, and if we're going to go back to what Baptists believed before, the historical Baptist convention, uh, uh, um, position, then we have to go pre-revivalism and pre-decisional regeneration. And so you need to know that. Now, again, as I said at the beginning of the message, we praise God for every born-again believer. We praise God for any Baptist that, that preaches salvation by grace through faith alone. But I want to make sure that we do this, that Christ receives all the glory, that he's the one who has done this. And I don't want to see in, in preaching us share the glory with Christ. I don't want to see preachers share the glory with Christ. I don't want to see the soul winner share the glory with Christ. I don't want the sinner to share glory with Christ. I don't want to see anybody sharing Christ's glory. That belongs to him alone. And so as we look at the doctrine of Berean Baptist Church, there is simply no way that you could ever come to a conclusion, could you ever leave any hope in what we believe that man could ever receive the glory for his salvation. You examine the doctrine from top to bottom and you're never going to be able to see Ephesians 3.21 upset so that man receives any of the glory. And I hope that you see that. The doctrine that we're teaching absolutely prevents man from receiving any glory. 
Now, what we do is we agree with Spurgeon, who said that the gospel puts man into the dust. And we want a gospel that leaves man there. And the only way that man can rise from the corruption of the dust is by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't get that with decisional regeneration. And if you skipped all of the other theological reasons why that particular teaching can't be true, you can discard it on this one basis alone. It does not give Christ all of the glory. Now, let me return to the opening remarks about salvation being for the glory of God. Finney's scheme destroyed that premise. But Finney was just a starter in this. Finney's the one who got the ball rolling downhill with the change in regeneration. And while that ball was rolling downhill, it picked up the methodologies that actually become a support system for the error. He taught about the anxious bench, and and that would be the same thing as I told you a week or so ago. It's the same thing as what we call the altar call today. He he taught, um, I mean, there, there, there are... Uh, other things that he brought into this, the, the persuasive techniques of invitations and so on that he used in order to try to convince people to receive Christ. And so those kinds of errors were picked up by other evangelicals, even by men who in the past years have been more influential than Finney. And so if I wanted to skip over the next hundred years or so, we would come to Billy Graham. And Billy Graham used radio and TV and sound systems and huge stadiums and he was able to reach and has reached multi-millions of people. And the gospel of Billy Graham may not exactly be Finney's gospel, but he has all the methodologies that I talked about before that were brought in by that system and he used that system in order to get many of his conversions. So Finney has become the hero of many evangelicals. Jerry Falwell, a fundamental Baptist, said that Charles Finney was one of the great heroes of the faith. And if he had been able to write the Bible, I'm sure that he would have Charles Finney in Hebrews chapter 11. And that is despite the fact that Finney denied sole fide. You remember that, what what that is? Faith alone. Finney denied sole fide. He denied the substitutionary atonement. He said that Christ did not pay for your sins at the cross, that it's impossible for Christ to be an atonement for your sins. And rather, he taught the moral atonement of of the theory of the atonement. And that is that Christ just provided a good example for us, that we live by that good example. And I don't need to go on. I mean, I've given you those errors at least three or four, five, six times maybe. And so what I would do, I would rather say that the Pope is my hero of the faith rather than to say that Finney was some great soul winner. I believe that Finney was as lost as the Pope. If he believed what he said, he was a lost man. He couldn't have been saved. But Finney's not the end of it. Between Finney and Billy Graham, there are a host of other people that have filled that gap. And what Finney taught might well have died out if it hadn't been for this next man that I want to talk to you about. It might have died out because there are many Baptists that actually rejected what was being taught by, by Finney. And all of that might have been overcome if it hadn't been for the next man. Now brace yourself for this. His name is Dwight Lyman Moody. And I realize that to mention Dwight Moody in any other context besides an archangel who sits next to the throne of God is practically sacrilegious. Now, there's a lot of good things that Dwight Moody did. He was a man of zeal and compassion. I believe that unlike Finney, there were many of his converts that were real. They were genuine. 
And that has to be expected because Dwight Moody didn't have the Pelagian tendencies of Finney. But like Finney, Moody was not a Baptist. In fact, Moody was never ordained as a minister. He refused ordination because he was not knowledgeable enough in doctrine to actually pass the ordination examination. Moody was not a member of any denomination because he believed that an affiliation with a certain denomination would affect evangelism. And there are many Baptists that, that believe that Finney walked on water. But somehow they overlooked the fact that Moody would not discuss doctrine because he didn't believe that it was important. And which makes it small wonder that he was in favor of working with Roman Catholics in evangelism. Moody supported the building of a Roman Catholic cathedral in Ireland. He met with the Archbishop of New York to encourage him in his evangelistic campaign. He asked the Archbishop of Chicago to pray for him. I don't understand how fundamental Baptists could mix with that because we would never do that today. We would never accept a person who did that. Here's an account by Martin McGowan of Moody's conversion experience. He wrote, on 16 May 1855, Moody presented himself before the leaders of Mount Vernon Congregationalist Church as a prospective member. The examining committee found him woefully ignorant of basic doctrines. He had no understanding of what his conversion meant apart from a sincere emotional feeling which he could not express. Upon being asked, what has Christ done for you and for us all that entitles him to our love and obedience? The only answer Moody could produce was, I think he's done a great deal for us all, but I don't know of anything that he's done in particular. McGowan also noted, there are special rules for the unbiblical, or there are no special rules for the unbiblical office of a revival preacher. A preacher, whether he's active in preaching during a revival or not, is called to preach the scriptures and to be instant in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Second Timothy 4 verse 2. Since Moody was theologically ignorant, he was not called to preach. Now, that's a stinging assessment of a man that could walk on water. And yet, Moody himself was humble enough to admit that he knew very little about theology, which from this point on in revivalism seems to be a qualification of the preacher. Now, still another quote, Moody developed a new appreciation for the love and grace of God. According to this new proclamation theology, the preacher loves people into the kingdom. Of course, the love of God, which Moody had discovered, was not the sovereign, particular, efficacious love of Scripture, but a general attitude of benevolence towards all. A love which depends on the free will of the sinner for its effectiveness. A love which fails to save multitudes of the objects of that love. As Moody himself once proclaimed in Scotland, Jesus loved Judas Iscariot as surely as he loved Simon Peter. A truly horrifying thought. I remember a college Baptist college professor who said, and by the way, this man is, a, is an historian, he said that Dwight Moody is the single man who caused the most damage to Baptist churches in America than any other person. And of course, he was speaking of his doctrine or the lack thereof. And he followed Finney, if not in his extremes of, of, of doctrine on that Pelagian issue. But he did follow Finney in this, switching regeneration, biblical regeneration, to decisional regeneration, which elevates the will of man over the glory of God. Now, my purpose in bringing this up to you tonight 
is not to destroy a man who had zeal and compassion for souls. I certainly wouldn't criticize anyone for that. Even the great Apollos, though, had to be pulled aside and taught the ways of God more perfectly. Peter had to be rebuked by Paul. Do you remember that? And Dwight Moody needed to be doctrinally correct and doctrinally grounded before he ever stepped into a pulpit and pretended to be a preacher. And my reference to Apollos is not to say, not to compare Moody's preaching with that of Apollos, the oratorical skills, because the really strange thing about this all is that Moody was not a good preacher. He wasn't skilled in the development of a sermon. I mean, he never had any schooling on that. He never was taught anything like that. So how to develop a sermon, he didn't know. He had very poor diction. His grammar was poor. He spoke too fast. Now, I talk too fast. I try to slow down, but I know that I talk too fast. But at best, I I speak about 125 words per minute. But Moody had a burst of about 230 words per minute. Charles Spurgeon said that he was the only man who could say Mesopotamia in two syllables. And and then it might interest you to know this, that Moody has been called the great apostle of Arminianism. And that's kind of strange for independent Baptists who want to follow Moody because they want to be called Biblicists instead of Arminians. And uh, that usually is a distinction without a difference. Uh, I don't actually know of any historical theology, uh, theological category that's called a biblicist. And we do have others. So this is not really to put Moody down just for the sake of driving nails into his coffin. But what I want to talk about now is observations that were made at Moody's meetings who were concerned about the very same issues that we've been talking about tonight. Where is the glory of God? In his preaching, where's the glory of God and how is that affected by decisional regeneration? Well, I'd call to your attention another well-known prominent evangelical leader who is contemporary with Dwight Moody. His name was Dr. John Kennedy of Dingwell, Scotland. And he was a doctrinally grounded minister and he was qualified to comment by personal observations of what he heard at Moody's meetings. Now, Dwight Moody held evangelistic campaigns in America, many of those, but also in England as well. And it's said that there were thousands of people who came to Christ through his efforts. And Moody himself, though, admitted that the thousands who came were sometimes the same ones over and over. That the same ones came to the meetings night after night and recommitted themselves. So what Moody did, he became upset about that. And so in one of his meetings, he asked that, that people that had been to the meeting before would get up and go outside so that people outside that wanted to get in to hear the gospel could come in and hear it. And when he said that, there were about 600 people that got up and went out. And they were replaced by 600 people who were just, just like the ones who went out. So the, the claim that thousands were saved under Moody's ministry... Uh, may be highly suspect. But Moody's methods also to get conversions were suspect. There were high-pressure techniques that were used to get confessions. Moody used the inquiry room. Now, we talk about the altar call, and this would be the altar call for him. He used the inquiry room, and what he would do, he would send people that were interested to these inquiry rooms where they were, they were uh, this, this, this thing of salvation was discussed with them, but there weren't any questions about whether the people actually understood what they were committing to. There were just prayers, and there were decisions. 
Now, going back to Dr. Kennedy, he called Moody's campaigns hyper-evangelism, and he wrote a review of what he saw night after night while attending several of these meetings, and actually it was enough to get a pretty good handle on what Moody was consistently preaching. Now, I want you to notice the primary objection that Dr. Kennedy had with Moody and see if this doesn't sound familiar. I'm quoting from an article on the subject. His objection to Moody's teaching was that it ignored the supreme end of the gospel, which is the manifestation of divine glory, and misrepresented it as merely unfolding a scheme of salvation adapted to man's convenience. And isn't that what I've said happens with decisional regeneration? When man is made the chief end of salvation rather than the glory of God, then salvation is put into the hands of the sinner to take it and leave it as he chooses. So it becomes a matter of convenience to him rather than a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Now it's sort of like Felix when he said to Paul, when the time is convenient, I'll call for you. Now, of course, Moody was preaching for decisions right then, but it wasn't God that was in charge. Now, let me list the reasons for you that Dr. Kennedy reached these conclusions. Why did he say that Moody ignored the end of the gospel, which is the manifestation of divine glory? And I want you to notice that these same objections couldn't be raised by the, uh, in the preaching of many Baptist churches. And then we'll also see if it doesn't match the evangelism of churches in general because Moody's gospel was actually the forerunner of the church growth movement of Rick Warren and also what you see in Joel Osteen. Now, number one, his first objection, no pains were taken to present the character and claims of God as lawgiver and judge and no indication given of a desire to bring souls in self-condemnation to accept the punishment of their iniquity. You should recognize that. Do you remember one of the sayings that we had in evangelism class? You have to get people lost before you can get them saved. Proper evangelism leads people to the law before it takes them to grace. A person has to realize his sinfulness. And what the law does, it pounds him with the guilt of his sinfulness. And the law takes a person to the mat, and it won't let that person get up until he realizes he can't get up. But decisional regeneration never does that. The effect of it is that sin is downplayed in repentance. And folks, this is a real issue among many Baptists. Um, often repentance is, is just practically ignored. Now, I'll give you a name, and I'm going to stand by what I said here because I have some quotes for you. Uh, Curtis Hudson took repentance out of their hymn books. The hymn books that, well, the very hymn book, one of the ones that we used to use around here, Curtis Hudson had repentance taken out. Hudson said that a person does not need to repent of anything but unbelief. And he taught that repentance is not a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. He said that a person can be saved, that is to receive Christ as Savior without becoming a disciple. So he denied lordship salvation. Now this afternoon I was thinking over this and I decided I would just take a look in, in Curtis Hudson's book. Uh, his book is Repentance, What Does the Bible Teach? Now what I've just said, here's what I just said. He taught that repentance is not a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. This is a direct quote from his book. 
The problem and confusion is not preaching repentance, but attaching the wrong definition to the word. For instance, to say that repentance means to turn from sin, or to say that repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action, is to give a wrong definition of the word. And to teach that man must turn from his sins to be saved or change his actions to be saved is a contradiction to the clear teaching of the Word of God that one is saved by grace through faith. Though often we hear the expression, repent of your sins, it is not in the Bible. Now let me read to you from Louis Burkhoff and his systematic theology about what the doctrine of repentance is. Burkhoff describes the intellectual element of repentance as a change of view or a recognition of sin as involving personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness. Let me read what he says. The emotional element is a change of feeling manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against a holy God. The volitional element, element is a change of purpose, an inward turning away from sin, and a disposition to seek pardon and cleansing. Each of those three elements is deficient apart from the others. Repentance is a response of the total person. Therefore, some speak of it as total surrender. The predominant no-lordship view on repentance is simply to redefine repentance as a change of mind, not a turning from sin or a change of purpose. This view states, in both Old and New Testaments, repentance means to change one's mind. That, that comes from Ryrie's So Great Salvation and uh, Charles, uh, Charles Ryrie's uh, So Great Salvation, which is identical to Hudson, uh, Curtis Hudson's view. Is repentance a condition for receiving eternal life? Yes, if it if it is repentance or changing one's mind about Jesus Christ. No, if it means to be sorry for sin or even resolve to turn from sin. Repentance by that definition is simply a synonym for the no lordship definition of faith. It's simply an intellectual exercise. Note that the no lordship definition of repentance explicitly denies the emotional and volitional elements in Burkhoff's description of repentance. No lordship repentance is not being sorry for sin or even resolving to turn from sin. It means simply changing one's mind about his former conception of God and belief in God and Christ. Now, what that is actually saying then, what Curtis Hudson is saying is, you, to be saved, you don't actually have to turn from sin. Your, your repentance from sin doesn't even enter into this. You change your mind about Christ, and that's all it is. You decide to come in faith. And so what Curtis Hudson does, and his book also says, he equates repentance and faith as being exactly the same thing. But repentance and faith are two different things in theology. Repentance is not faith. Faith is not repentance. But faith cannot be had without repentance, and repentance cannot be had without faith. And, and repentance absolutely does include turning from your sin, changing your mind about sin, self, and God. That's what repentance is. And if you don't teach that as repentance, you have a deficient salvation. Now, that actually became a problem for independent Baptists, what, what Curtis Hudson, Hudson said. And so Shelton Smith, later Shelton Smith, who's now the head of the sword of the Lord, attempted to try to correct that error somewhat. And uh, what I can't do is I can't give you exactly what, what Shelton Smith's idea is on repentance now. I can't do that, but I do know this, that he restored repentance to their hymn books. Now, several years ago, what I did... Uh, we had a lot of Curtis Hudson's tracks here, 
on uh, faith and repentance. And I threw away all of these tracts that, that denied the biblical doctrine of repentance. Now, let me say this, that many of the fundamental preachers that you know have not given up on repentance. I mean, this is one of the things that I always look for when I, when I pick up a track, a soul winning track. I always look in that track. Does it talk about repentance? Does it speak about a person turning from their sins and then coming to Christ and having faith in Christ? Does it talk about that? And if I pick up a track where it does not mention repentance and it doesn't talk about turning from your sins, then I know that that track is produced by somebody who has a no lordship view of salvation. It's not necessary for you to actually follow Christ as Lord, or as Curtis Hudson said, you don't have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ to be saved. To me, that's mind-boggling. I mean, that is not historical Christianity. Now, I can speak to that because I've just read it to you. So there's no doubt about what's been said. And this is the thing that... that um, um, this writer that I'm talking about, Kennedy, that, that's one of the things, the objections he had against Moody. And in fact, Curtis Hudson quotes Dwight Moody by saying that salvation is not sorrow for sin. It cannot include that. Not being sorry for your sin. Now, secondly, he said, oh, oh, by the way, too, that, that idea about no repentance, that shows up in the, um, the wrong types of evangelistic literature like the gospel presentation of Campus Crusade for Christ. They have exactly the same idea. Now, secondly, he said it ignored, Moody's preaching ignored the sovereignty and power of God in the dispensation of his grace. And that's been the main point. Decisional regeneration concentrates on the will of man, not the sovereignty of God. And so what decisional regeneration does, it denies the grace of God in the new birth as taught by Jesus in John chapter 3. There he taught that the new birth is affected, or regeneration is affected above our comprehension by the Holy Spirit. It denies Romans 9, in which uh, the scripture says, Paul wrote, God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. It denies John chapter 1 that says we are born of the will of God and not of the will of man. Then thirdly, he said his preaching afforded no help to discern in light of the doctrine of the cross how God is glorified in the salvation of the sinner that believes in Jesus. Now, again, that's what we're talking about. Christ intends to receive the glory of salvation. That's what it's about. And salvation does not terminate in man. It terminates in the glory of Christ. Fourthly, he said, it offers no precaution against tendencies to antinomianism on the part of those who believe. Now, let me explain that to you. Because this has also been taken up by many Baptists. Antinomianism simply means against law. That the law has no effect on us any longer. That we can live without the law because grace covers everything. And that sounds good. As a means of justification, that is absolutely right. But as a means of sanctification, it is absolutely wrong. What it does, it's horrible. It leads to this doctrine of carnal Christianity. And this is really why there are many Baptists that reject lordship salvation. And they reject it because they refuse to believe that many of their converts that simply pray to prayer are not actually saved. And, and although many of them never even show up for church and many of them never give any evidence of a change in their lives that would indicate salvation, yet they say they're as saved as anyone. Their, their only problem is they're carnal Christians. And so being saved does not mean that you have to accept the lordship of Christ. 
Again, as Curtis Hudson said, you can be a believer but not be a disciple. But I think all you really need to do is read Matthew chapter 7 and read Matthew chapter 10 and believe Jesus instead of Curtis Hudson. And so here's what happens. What happens when you're talking about antinomianism? These people deny the doctrine of perseverance. I was actually accused of believing in work salvation because I believe that the Bible teaches that a Christian must persevere. And I was told that I believe that Christians don't believe, or I believe that Christians can't get into any kind of serious sin because I believe in perseverance. But what I read in the Bible, it says that we must persevere. Perseverance is actually our guard against antinomianism. We can't live any way that we want to live just because we prayed a prayer and somebody told you once saved, always saved. No, the faith that we have and the assurance of our salvation in Christ is having a salvation, a faith that perseveres. The profession of faith has to be a producing confession. That's what James said. Faith without works is dead, being alone. So the Bible commands perseverance, but we only do it because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Moody's preaching did not emphasize that. Modern Baptist preaching many times does not emphasize that, emphasize it. Many of them simply deny perseverance as a doctrine of hyper-Calvinism. Well, I'm running out of time, and I need to resume this next time, but let me squeeze in another comment. Uh, this is another quote and objection by Dr. Kennedy. Uh, Moody said this to a group of young ladies that were sitting in front of them, of him. He said, go to the street and lay your hand on the shoulder of every drunkard you meet and tell him that God loves him and that Christ died for him. And if you do so, I can see no reason why in 48 hours there should be an unconverted drunkard in Edinburgh. Now, let, me, let me read that last part again. I can see no reason why in 48 hours there should be an unconverted drunkard in Edinburgh. This is what Dr. Kennedy said in response to that. This selfish earnestness, this proud resolve to make a manageable business of conversion work is intolerant of any recognition of the sovereignty of God. And folks, right there in a nutshell is what soul winning has become in many churches. It is manageable business. That the only thing that you need to do is to attend the classes you make it effectual by your ability to project. You make it effectual by the techniques that you use. You just use all of these things and you can convert people to Jesus Christ. And so, the sovereignty of God, who cares about that? We're going to convert people whether God likes it or not. That's what I told you about in the, a few weeks ago in the issue with Jack Hiles. In the book that he wrote on, on uh, conversion and getting sinners to walk aisles. He said you've got to sneak up on them. You've got to trick them into, into salvation. And that, that's not a misquote. That's what he said. I read it to you from his book. Now what follows then is the obvious statement. There is of course frequent references to the Spirit. And an acknowledgement of the necessity of his work. But there is after all very little allowed for him to do. And bustling men feel and act as if somehow his power was under their control. And who doesn't see that in churches today? The manipulation, the tactics, the tricks. All kinds of things that are used to manipulate people. And you just have to ask what is left for the Holy Spirit to do? It's the tear-jerking story that will draw them in. Do you depend upon the Holy Spirit 
Are you going to wait on the Holy Spirit to move? Well, if you listen to Jack Hiles, he would say no. Because if you wait too long and you don't seize the moment, then you're going to lose them. As if the Holy Spirit has nothing at all to do with how a person is saved. And so they speak of the Holy Spirit. If they didn't, they'd be heretics. They mention him. But what is the Holy Spirit actually doing? Now think about it for a minute, folks. He can't influence a decision, can he? That's acting upon the will. And you can't influence a person's will. God can't do that. And when you think like that, then you better stop praying for the salvation of sinners. Because what do you pray for? You pray that God would influence them to come to Christ because that's the only way that they can. So stop praying for people if you believe this kind of stuff. You don't want the Holy Spirit to overcome anybody's will, for heaven's sake. Well, that's enough for tonight. There's more that I want to show you. I mean, there, there's a, uh, we can see that the glory of God has gone out of a lot of this. That salvation is for me and not for God. And that not only upsets regeneration and salvation, that upsets the Creator Himself. This is what He said. This is what the Scripture says. Revelation 4.11 Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So we come back to where we started. Right back to where we started. Salvation is all for the glory of God. Salvation of sinners is all for the glory of God. And when we take that out of God's hands and we put it into man's hands, God will not receive all the glory. And therefore we have a wrong teaching about salvation. Now as I said in a message a few weeks ago, and I'm, and I'm finished now, I'm just ad-libbing a little bit. But as I said in a, in a message a, a few weeks ago, that... Um, there are many people that, that, when they're teaching on the subject of salvation, they may say some things that are wrong. Uh, I mean, they might even get into the area of decisional regeneration and not even realize what they're doing. And there are many people that are actually saved under that kind of preaching. And that's because, it's not because of the preaching. It's because of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit takes whatever seed of truth that is in there when a person is teaching the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, by faith in him alone, then God can take that seed and despite wrong doctrine, he can turn that in and make it grow and cause a person to come in repentance and faith to him. This is why that we don't believe that only Baptist people are going to heaven. I mean, goodness sake, I mean, there's all these people out here that have wrong theology on a lot of things, things that we wouldn't agree with, but if they teach salvation by grace through faith alone, people are going to be saved because the Holy Spirit uses the message, the correct message of the gospel to save people. Now, there are many instances in the New Testament of, of places where people aren't teaching exactly the right thing, but people could get saved as long as we're right on this nugget of truth, and that is the God, Jesus Christ says, by faith in him alone, it's by nothing that we do. Now, it's incumbent upon us to build upon that and to get the right doctrine that follows that in order to edify, edify people in the faith. We most certainly do need to do that. But people who preach salvation by grace alone, others are saved under that kind of preaching. And we thank God when the gospel is preached. So we'll close with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us tonight. And Lord, we see these things as uh, errors that need to be addressed. There are serious issues that we need to talk about here. And it's best that we have the truth of these matters and straighten out our own thinking about it to make sure that we're right. 
We want the right gospel to be preached. We want Jesus Christ to be glorified. And that's why we spend time on these kinds of issues. So thank you, Lord, for giving us the truth of this from your word. Bless us tonight, Lord. Be with us and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.